Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is June 19th, and on this day in history, in 1778, U.S. General George Washington's troops finally left a Valley Forge after a winter of training and suffering. On this very day in 1846, the New York Knickerbocker Club played the New York Club in the first baseball game at the Elysian Field in Hoboken, New Jersey. It was the first organized baseball game. On this day in 1862, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln outlined his Emancipation Proclamation, which outlawed slavery in U.S. territories. On this day in 1865, the emancipation of slaves was proclaimed in Texas. On this day in 1867, in New York, the Belmont Stakes was run for the first time. For those of you who don't know, that's a stupid horse race. On this day in 1910, the first Father's Day was celebrated, not in the country, just in Spokane, Washington. On this day in 1912, the U.S. government established the eight-hour workday. On this day in 1934, the U.S. Congress established the Federal Communications Commission, better known as the FCC. It was made to regulate radio and TV broadcasting. On this day in 1939, in Atlanta, Georgia, legislation was enacted that disallowed pinball machines in the city because they're so dangerous and evil. On this day in 1942, Norma Jean Mortensen, also better known as Marilyn Monroe, and her 21-year-old neighbor, Jimmy Doherty, were married. Oh, then they divorced very soon after. On this day in 1961, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a provision in Maryland's Constitution that required state officeholders to profess a belief in God. Dumb as hell. On this day in 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was approved after surviving an 83-day filibuster in the U.S. Senate. On this day in 1978, Garfield was seen as a cartoon in U.S. papers for the first time. On this day in 1987, the Supreme Court struck down the Louisiana law that required that schools teach creationism. And in 1989, Batman was released. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to the next best thing. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No, but it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho, it's been a week. It's been a busy week. It's been a crazy week. I feel like I say that every week because I feel like that's true every week. Before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. If at any point throughout the broadcast you hear an item you would like to discuss or feel there's a tidbit that you could contribute to the show, by all means, feel free to call in. The call-in number is 718-928-9732. Again, that's 718-928-9RFB-9732. Or if you don't want to be heard on the air because you're a little bashful, no problem, you can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Or go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff, usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash nbtradio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall, you can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported if you like what you hear on radio free brooklyn if you like what you hear tonight please consider going to our website going to this show's page and donating a little something something to keep us in business if you like what you hear tonight well a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that uh if you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. And the last thing I'll tell you before we get on to the important cool stuff is that all episodes of The Next Best Thing are now available on iTunes as podcasts. Holy crap, that is huge news. It actually happened weeks ago, but every time I say it, I just get a little excited because it's huge. If you ever miss an episode of The Next Best Thing, which, come on, let's be honest, you miss most of them, uh, you can go to the iTunes store or check the podcast app on your iPhone. Just type in The Next Best Thing, click on our logo, which I trust you know, and there you will find literally all of the past episodes. You'll see the title so you can pick and choose which ones pique your interest or which ones just simply sound the most bearable. Listen to those, and if you have a few minutes... Rate us, review us, tell a friend, tell a relative, tell an enemy. Do whatever you got to do to spread the word because the word of mouth is how we grow. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. All right. Main stories for tonight. And I do say stories because there's more than one. I have been teasing, if you will, about my interview with the one, the only, fantastic, incomparable Charles Bush for a long time. Who is Charles Bush? Well, I'll tell you. He's a Tony-nominated playwright, 
actor, screenwriter, movie stage actor, among other things. He is unique to the nth degree. Such a nice guy. He was so, you know, I went and I interviewed him in his home in the West Village. And we spoke, we sat there talking for over two hours. And it was just, you know, kind of, I put my notes aside at one point and we were just kind of shooting the shit. I'm cursing a lot and I apologize. If there are children in the room, they should be in bed. For, yeah, we talked for over two hours. He was, and then he gave me a tour of his place. It was, he was so nice. Couldn't have been more generous with his time. I really enjoyed talking to him. And I think you will enjoy hearing the conversation. I said to him right from the get-go, my goal when I interview anyone, but especially you, Mr. Bush, is to not ask questions. When I do my prep for interviews, I listen to everything I can find. Interviews they've done in the 80s, interviews they've done last week, whether it's a podcast, on a TV broadcast, whatever. I listen to it if I can find it. And what I aim to do is ask questions I didn't hear asked on those other interviews. A, they're already out there, so people probably already know the answers to them. And B, he has to be sick of telling the same stories, right? Right. So I think you'll find this interview unique in the topics we cover and the kind of the angles we go with certain topics that he might have talked about once or twice. Before we get into my personal interview, I have to play a quick scene from the movie of his that actually introduced me to his work, Psycho Beach Party. Now, just to make sure everyone's clear, if you're not familiar with his work, Charles Bush is a very famous drag performer, a drag legend, if you will. In this clip, from Psycho Beach Party, he is playing Captain Monica Stark, a detective in this beach town who is checking out and trying to solve a mystery as to who is committing these murders. Enjoy. Well, here we are, just another murder. I'd rather we met the miniature golf. He was my friend. I understand that at the time of the murder, you were walking along the beach. Run into anyone on this relaxing stroll? I saw her. Chicklet? How come you didn't tell her I bought you a burger and fries? The great Kanaka. Leader of the pack. Long time no see. Still following the sun. Still walking the straight and narrow-minded. Still intend to knock down this fire trap you call a bachelor pad. Come by with those handcuffs and we'll burn it down together. Oh! You forget that I'm both a cop and a lady. Why are you picking on us? We didn't do nothing wrong. Because I don't like you. Don't like the way you talk. Don't like the way you walk. Don't like your haircut. You kids think you own this beach. Think it's a teenage world. Or you're dead wrong. Are you going to arrest us? I might. All right. Great scene, great character, great, great movie. You should see it if you haven't. Here is my conversation with the incomparable Charles Bush. Well, Mr. Bush, thank you so much for doing this. We're very excited. I want to start and ask you about when you were, you lost your mother at age seven, and you're from Hartsdale. You, what a way to start. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, <laughs> we'll bring it down, then we go up. <laughs> right, exactly. I know. Well, what I, because what I was going to ask you is you moved then and you moved to live with your aunt yes. in New York City. Um, but your father, Benjamin, he was an aspiring opera singer. He owned a record shop in Yonkers, and he stayed. Kind of, he was a theater lover. He liked the theater, yes, right? Yeah. Did you guys kind of have a connection there? Yes. Oh yes. No. It, um, 
my father was, was a lot of fun. Uh-huh. My, but he was a bit like the teenager in the family. And he was just a lot of fun. There was nobody more fun to go with to an amusement park than my father. <laughs> really? Yes. And he, he, he was, you know, just fun is the best word to use. Ha- uh, responsible? I wouldn't say so. It would be kind of like if you had, uh, your father was 15 years old. Um, so, yeah, no, my father was just not a very adult, um, responsible person. But... On the on the positive side, and, I, and oddly enough, as time goes by, I, I find the past much rosier than than I used to think. You know, I, yeah. and he, my father loved the theater, and I think you know I got some of that from him, and 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 I continued to have a relationship with him till he till he died, and he lived to be about eighty. When you came to live with your aunt, was it there was nothing? It wasn't obviously. Just from hearing what you just said, it wasn't because you had a bad relationship with your dad. No, this is a situation, basically. Uh, my mother died when I was seven. And we were living in, in Westchester, in the suburbs of New York, Hartsdale. And so my mother died. And then I, my mother had two older sisters, my Aunt Belle and my Aunt Lillian. And we had a whole string of tragedies within two years. My mother died, then both my aunts lost their husbands within two years. And so, um, so my Aunt Belle moved in with us in Westchester with my, my sister and I. Oh, okay. And so, uh, who's three years older than I am. So she moved in, and she was so unhappy. She lost her husband. She was working a full-time job. My father was taking advantage of her good nature. You know, oh, more freedom, you know. And uh, so she was unhappy, and I just kind of dr- drifted. And so over the next couple of years, I just was in such a fantasy world that I was flunking out of school, and I, by the time I was in finishing um, eighth grade, I was really in very bad shape. And I, you know, I was, and so my my aunt Lillian, my mother's oldest sister, who I was always very close to and spent many most weekends with her in New York City, um, she came out to Hartsdale to a parents' day, you know, and I must have really put I, I don't know how I I did an acting job worthy of Laurence Olivier at somehow getting. Neither aunt or my father or anybody to see a report card. I must have, like, the other one thought, the other one was seeing it, because yeah. somehow I had them all bamboozled. So when Andaline came to school and went to each class, and each teacher said, Oh, he's, you know, we're flunking him, and he's, you know, n- mind you, no sympathy for a motherless <laughs> oh. kid who's, who was not rebellious, but was simply yeah. lo- just depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, she she was just really floored, and then she asked me <laughs> if I could show her my notebook, and and I showed her my notebook, and it was like really kind of slightly psychotic because I had t- I had taken doodling to right. a f- degree that has never been known beyond maybe Escher, you know, just faces within faces, and and not a single thing written down, just this black with ink. So she um, and Lillian stepped in, and you know, she was 59 years old at that time, and you know, she had no children of her own, and a sophisticated New York lady, a widow at this point. So she convinced the school in Westchester that if I moved in with her for the, just for the summer and she could supervise me, and if I could pass these exams, would I be able to keep up with my class and not be left back? So they said, okay. So I moved in with her ostensibly just for the summer. Mm-hmm. And it was really um, 
summer, the, maybe the key summer of my life in, in some ways. You know, this was 1968, and it was, that was a very important summer mm-hmm. politically. And you know, so she, we would read the front page of the New York Times every day for her to somehow drum into me that the world was a bigger place beyond my own neurosis. She has said, or I saw that she had said in an interview that when she came to get you in Westchester and brought you into New York City, she saw a change in you just Mm -hmm. from being in the city. Like she said that you were so shy and kind of introverted, but when you got here, you kind of opened up and... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was really, I was served through different people. Because, well, you know, I was in Westchester... I was going to this um, rather conservative suburban school system that, you know, I wasn't terribly bullied, but still I certainly was not flourishing. Yeah, part of any kind of group. And and I just was so, you know, I got so mixed up into, in a way it served me well later, you know, old movies from television, but it can also be kind of a drug if you've, if you've locked out the real world. Did you know, like, did you, do you remember your mom? Did you, did it start I don't remember it terribly well. Okay. Now I was seven years old. I don't remember the sound of her voice at all. And now I'm, I question even visual memories. I think, I think I'm remembering a photograph I've seen. Okay, so now let's jump ahead. My only question about the Limbo Lounge is this. I, I don't know if you, you probably never make it over th- that area anymore, but I was just there. I love the East Village. I walk past that corner a lot. There's like nothing where the limo lounge used to be. It was boarded. It was just the... Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Things change all the time. Right. And, and we, the limo lounge is two doors down. The one I saw is two doors down from of the former Life Cafe, which yes. is where Jonathan Larson kind of came up with and yes. wrote Rent. Absolutely. A lot of artistic, you know, historical, important stuff happened there, and now nothing. So my only real question is, with your story, do you think that could even happen today? A bunch of, you know, like young artistic kids kind of putting together a show. And, like, I don't feel like there's a lot of spaces here where young can just kind of put in a show. You know, I honestly think there's always young people mm-hmm. looking for a break and very talented young people, mm-hmm. and they will find a way. Now, it's, it, real estate does change things quite a bit. Yeah. I'm not sure it's happened so much in New York City, mm-hmm. but it's certainly happening in Brooklyn. You know, yeah, if, yeah. if you're talented and you've got a lot of drive and you don't censor yourself... Because that, that's, that's really is what could foul you up yeah. a lot. One of the, you've said that one of the main reasons you started writing was to create opportunities for yourself mm-hmm. to perform. When you started doing that, when did you, because I know initially you were doing a one-man show, very initially, yeah. like, and when did you start writing roles for yourself as a female? Like, did that, was that something you were, wanted to try right from the get-go, or when did that kind of evolve? Oh, well, see, I was very influenced by... Uh, Brilliant actor, playwright, director, mm-hmm. entrepreneur named Charles Ludlam. Right. And he was a great idol of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tidal wave moment for, for me as a very young, very young person when I first saw him because I always wanted to be on stage. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the dream was to somehow act. I hadn't right. quite figured out how I was going to do that, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to be up there and delight. And so I went to Northwestern as a theater major with some vague notion that I was going to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And then it became quite apparent at Northwestern that uh, I was just too gay and too strange and 
Is that really what you think it was? Too gay? Everything was. I was too. I was too much, oh. and uh, and too little, and so. I was never cast in a play. That might lead to one if you had slightly pragmatic nature to think there might be a problem when you get in the real professional world if, if you're never cast in a play yeah. in university theater. So I got very discouraged. I just thought, I don't know if this is going to work out. It's the only thing I want to do. But I always wrote ever since I was a kid. But so did Charles Ludlam, in his shows, did he, was he doing drag? Yeah, yes. I'm, I'm no, no, going off on all sorts of... Yes, Charles Ludlam... He, his, he had a, a company that he created called uh, The Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Oh, yeah. And they um, and he wrote plays for this company, company and, and acts, directed them and acted them, usually the lead. And so now, he was now, you now people, before you. <laughs> well, yeah, it was oh. kind of what wow. my dream was awesome. after seeing him, that, right. that it was possible. But the thing with Ludlam, you know, a lot of times people list him under you know, the great sort of drag performers when in truth... Out of maybe 36 plays that he wrote, he probably played four female roles, which says something about mm -hmm. perception of drag. You know, that somehow he's drag queen, but the drag roles he did were extraordinary. He did a, his own adaptation of Camille, the famous play that then was a Garbo film, and and it, and oh, it was just extraordinary. And so, I, so when I was in college, and so discouraged about you know how am I going to find a place in the world. Unfortunately, living in New York, when I would come home on vacation, I started seeing more experimental theater. Right. And then particularly Charles Ludlam, who seemed to share all of my um, aesthetic interests in old movies and, and opera plots and melodrama, and, and that there, were, there was always, almost always somebody in drag, if not him, somebody else playing a drag role, and I didn't know that... I, that was possible. Really? Wow. To move Vampire Legends of Sodom from Limbo Lounge to an off-Broadway theater, you guys had to raise $55,000. That's a lot of money. I mean, like, that was a lot of money back then. That's still a lot of money. Yeah. How did you guys raise that? Well, you know, so, so I guess just to, in a nutshell, I saw Ludlam, and, and then um, I lived in Chicago two more years after I graduated, just kind of screwing around and having a, lot of sex and having a lot of fun and um, tr attempting, making little sort of tiptoeing into the world of the avant-garde, of cre creating my own plays. And, and then got to New York in 78, came back home, uh, and I thought that it would be easier for me to find a place in the theater as a solo performer. Because... It's just cheaper. Well, and because you basically started a theater group, right, in Chicago, and they were all assholes. Well, they turned on you. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I was skipping over that part, darling. I was, no, I was okay. being diplomatic about that. <laughs> you know, some of them might be listening to a radio show. Sure. But, um, anyway, <laughs> well, yes, it was a bad experience, so let's put it that way, of the first attempt at right. starting a little theater company. The wrong people, they didn't want it. Right. Well, yeah. they didn't want it. With me. Yeah. They didn't want to play. Right. They didn't want to play with me. So, um, but then, um, so I became a solo performer, and it was a way easier to just book myself in a right. cabaret room or something. So I was working, doing, I had all these crazy jobs to do, you know, earn a living. That's why I know rent kind of bugged me a little bit, because I thought, you know, because I was sort of living yeah. rent in a <laughs> right. certain sense in mm -hmm. that same neighborhood. Yeah. But I don't know, I always had a job, right. a part time job. I was convinced 
Yeah, I was convinced that if I ever took a full time job, that's right. that that might kill my right. ambition and my my fo- for my focus yeah. and everything. So the idea was to somehow get enough part time work, which was almost impossible. But I worked as a quick sketch portrait artist because mm-hmm. I, I draw well, right. and um, I was a receptionist in a zipper factory, and I I did a, you know the only thing I could not do was be a waiter because I was absolutely incapable of. Of handling that. You were a sports handicapper. I was a sports handicapper now, for a while. Can you explain what that even is? <laughs> oh, I, like it's uh, betting odds, right? I had a, I had a, a there was an older man who, who uh, I was seeing, you know, and uh, older man, he was like 35, but you know, when yeah. you're 23, you know, right. it's an older man. Anyway, he, among his businesses, he had a, a Sports phone service where people would pay a weekly fee each week to be able to call in, call in, and we would give them the tips on what sporting events to what what teams on basketball, baseball, football, and hockey to bet on. We would get the information from the handicappers. We were not the handicappers. I was saying, we were, we were not the handicappers. Bet on them. No, we would just get the the um, information, right. and people would call up. But and there was and and, and it was all the boys working in this basement on the phones were all aspiring performers, ballet dancers, <laughs> opera singers, actors, and we all were trying to butch it up on the phone and sort of talk, you know, right. <laughs> patriots, you know. And uh, anyway, one, one, <laughs> one ballet dancer, the bet was on, on uh, Villanova College, oh, you know, and, and he said... Uh, Three stars for Villanova. We've got to grab the phone oh, from no. him. You know, oh, God. The, you know, the whole thing was going to be ruined. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so, so I had that job for a while. Nice. You know, and I, I, no, it was just added a lot of office temp work oh. as rece- receptionist. And how did you, but how did you and Ken and all the, how did you guys band together to raise the 55000 uh, So, yeah, so, so, you know, we decided, we, I went to the Limbo Lounge, was so enraptured with it, wrote this, Vampire Lesbians play mm-hmm. while I was working as a temp. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very short, pe- you know, short yeah. piece of you know, forty minutes or something. Anyway, so then we it became such a hit at the Limbo Lounge in this bar mm-hmm. art gallery that we decided to move it to a real theater off Broadway. We needed fifty five thousand dollars. So well, we were duped by all sorts of people who said that they would help us, who then really? fell through, and you know, we we just went to everybody we'd ask. I mean, if you'd walked in the door, I said you. You got a thousand dollars to give me? Wow. No, <laughs> but but our families all, you know, it was all a lot of lot of old widows, oh, who, really? who thought this was the final chance for their troubled son to <laughs> well, make it uh, the last chance, and I, so everybody came through. It was it was very interesting to see who who came through for us and who didn't. You know, the people who would often had a lot of money and say, oh, uh, you know, if and. And if the moment comes, you know, I'll be there for you. And, uh, suddenly, they weren't there for you. Right. But then other people who just, you know, believed in me, and and I think thought, saw that this was the moment, mm-hmm. and so that we got we somehow we got that fifty five thousand dollars together, and and it didn't take that long, considering that some people work years to achieve their dream. Not not very long in, no. to get a dream right. to come true. Right, but you had put in a lot of work. I mean, like, you had worked on yourself. You had done your one-man show. Like, for that show, Raising the Money. It had been a decade of yeah. hard work. Right, right, right. No, I, I got my my big break. I was 31. 
Um, the group of people you did Vampires with and that ultimately became uh, Theater in Limbo, mm -hmm. uh, you said that, like, that, the success of that show and that whole experience is one of the best times of your life. Mm -hmm. And you've had, you know, you had your, you've had successful shows everywhere now on Broadway. And the people that you did this, the Vampires with and Theater in Limbo with, and they became your closest well, they, but they also they were before. You see, there is, when I when I decided to put on a play in this bar, you know, the only one, to, <laughs> it was kind of a bit of a difficult f phone call to make. Uh, <laughs> would you be in this play I want to do? It's called I'm calling it Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, and there's no pay, and we're gonna do it in this very scary neighborhood <laughs> that's mostly crack uh, addicts, uh, and it's actually not really a theater. It's a it's actually an art gallery, and there's actually no bathroom. But anyway, but it'd be fun, you know. It was kind of it wasn't the easiest phone call right. to to make, but I had my friend Andy Halliday, who who's my oldest friend. We we met in showbiz summer camp when we were fourteen, and then this girl Teresa Thevies, who I met in Washington D.C., and then my roommate Ken Elliott, who I knew from college. Mm -hmm. I, people were from all different areas of of my past, right. and they didn't necessarily know each other. They all clicked. Yeah. It was this kind of wonderful That's chemistry. Special. That is really special and, you know, when you find that. Yes, group. and 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 what was just wonderful and 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 I'll never forget it is just the fact that particularly after I'd had this bad experience in Chicago, which right. you alluded to, right. that of the wrong people who just didn't didn't get me right. and didn't want to be with me. Well, yeah, I was gonna, actually going to ask one character that I always I don't even know. I just intrigued me, but I couldn't. Well, I couldn't find much out about him. Was oh. Bobby? Oh, Bobby! Oh, I thought you were going to say him again. Um, oh, Bobby! Oh, Bobby Carey! I know. I don't want to upset you, but okay, can I you like just, talking about them. Can you tell me a little about Bobby Carey? Well, um, so we're doing this. We're going to do this play, mm -hmm. you know, for one weekend uh -huh. in this. I keep saying this art gallery <laughs> bar, you know. So it didn't really, you know, you really didn't need to cast it from the Royal Shakespeare Company, sure. <laughs> and. Um, Bobby was this gorgeous, gorgeous boy who was dating my roommate, Ken Elliott, who was the director. And they were dating. And Bobby was, I guess, working at Helmsley Palace, you know, behind the, the desk. Okay. And, he, and he was very beautiful, just beautiful. One of, the, one of the most beautiful boys you'd ever see with this gorgeous body. But he kind of talked like Harvey Firestein. Oh, he, really? He had this New Jersey accent. We kind of talk, talk like this, you know. Right. It was very much at odds with, funny. with his look. Uh, so, you know, Ken said, well, let's put Bob. Can we put, find a part for Bobby? Was so he said, an actor? Like, did he want no, to be an actor? Not a, never. He had no idea. Oh. <laughs> he really didn't know. He was just a very beautiful boy who didn't really know what he wanted to do. Yeah. And was just living the life of a beautiful young man. You know, and... Uh, and so, and, and very funny, very outrageous, just totally uncensored personality. So he, um, so I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of funny. Listen, what is it? Doesn't matter. So we had seen that took place in ancient Sodom. So I thought he'll be a guard, and we can just put him in a little brief little leather <laughs> g-string kind of thing, and show off his beautiful body. And it doesn't matter. We will give him a couple lines, and you know, and he had absolutely no aptitude for the theater. I mean, he never acted, never wanted to be an actor. So he was kind of leaning forward, and he would just do terrible line readings. But there's something genuinely sweet and endearing about him, which you can't teach. Right. 
and he was very charismatic. He was really couldn't get your. I mean, he was so beautiful in this intense kind of way of these thick eyebrows and big, big full lips. And um, so then, you know, he and you know, and he this was having a ball. You know, it was better than working as a desk clerk. Yeah. So he, we, when we did Vampire Lesbians, you know, and it ran for you know five years. We all stayed in it for two years, then moved to Psycho Beach Party. And, right. But but Bobby didn't have the um, ego of an actor who would get kind of bored or anything. So he would just it was a job. It was just a nice job for him. So he would do two years of in Vampire Lesbians, and he went to Psycho Beach Party for a year. When that was over, it turned out that his old part was opened up <laughs> in Vampire Lesbians. Went right back into it for another year. Absolutely. Then we did Lady in Question. He did that play, and then. Went back into the. <laughs> I mean, he was employed without a break for years, and, wow. uh, and then he uh, unfortunately uh, uh, got AIDS and, um, and and died tragically. At how old was he? His early thirties, I guess. And uh, it was you know, awful, awful tragedy for us. And he was just a darling, darling boy. Oh, was he? Now I imagine he probably wasn't the only. He was the only member of a theater in limbo that you lost, but that during that time period, you probably lost a lot, a number of friends. Well, yeah, it was just time. You know, it really did did seem like wartime for us in the uh, '80s and into the, into the '90s. Yeah, it just was, it was an extraordinary time, and I know we, you know, us survivors, you know, we we talk about it as our grandparents talked about, you know, the the Great War and yeah. all that, but it, it was a time of, of, of villains and, and nobility and, and heroes, and um, well, in some ways, as we are in today. You said there was a time of heroes and villains. Who was the villain? The government was the villain. And, you know, Reagan. Reagan, yeah. Because yeah. they acted like it wasn't happening. Yeah, they ignored that there was, a, there was anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, read the normal heart. When this is the only question I have about this, but I didn't even realized that you had been connected to Taboo. How do you know Taboo? Well, because, well, it wasn't that long ago that it was uh, on Broadway. I know it was Rosie O'Donnell's pet project. Mm -hmm. But my question is, so what it says on that Wikipedia page for Taboo is... Oh, is there one I've never looked at? Well, it it says that it was scored by this person, written by this person, and then it says extensively rewritten for the Broadway production. Totally rewritten. By Charles Bush. So my question is, what what was the story that like why why did it need to be rewritten? Did you have any relationship with Mark? What's his name? Uh, it is Mark. It's like Mark Davies. Yes, it was, yes, yeah. that's right. No, I never met him. I spoke to him. No, no. What happened was that it was a you know kind of a hit in London right. originally, um, and it was done in a, kind of a site specific, mm. off, what we would call off Broadway. Ambience and it was a hit and and Rosie went to see. What, what I was a Mark Davies Markham. Oh, was that his name? Yeah, oh. three names. Okay, yeah. Um, so Rosie went to see it mm-hmm. in London and just flipped. And she, uh, I think, was a big Boy George fan. He must have really meant something to her as a sure. lonely, you know, young lesbian <laughs> growing up in Comac, Long Island. Yeah. So um, anyway, so she immediately, you know, she's a, a woman of great passion and making big choices. So she decided, I think, on the spot that she had made a lot of money on television and mm-hmm. she could afford to 
to spend it on and produce a Broadway show for herself. And it was very, I don't think there'll ever be a Broadway show that was created by somebody out of such purity of motive. Mm-hmm. She, Rosie, I mean, I, I, I love her. I just, I just love her. I think she's a much maligned figure. You know, she'd had this career in stand-up and talk show, mm-hmm. you know, the crass forms of showbiz. <laughs> and she wanted, now that she had this cushion of money, she wanted to be, do something creative. She wanted, as she said, she wanted to be in the room with the artists. Yeah. So she got very... Some people said maybe she should have just seen the show and had a nice dinner and come home. But she uh, she wanted to was do Was it this. a little hasty? I mean, like, was it maybe hastily? Because it was very hasty. Because you know, musicals generally yeah. are developed over the course of years. Right. And this was, she's going to do it, and she's going to do it within the year. Right. Well, And so what was wrong with the book? I'm honestly... I, you know, I'm going to come off not good here, yeah. but, but it was terrible. <laughs> you know, Rosie, so I, I didn't want to do it at first because when Rosie, I didn't know her. I met, she arranged this meeting, and my first impulse was, oh, gee, so you see this, this show in London, and you want a whole new storyline, but you want to keep the score. Right. And that seems to have never worked before. Well, and that'd be difficult for you. It just didn't, to I thought there was story. a tradition that would never work. Right. So I said no. Mm-hmm. And then she very seductive in her way, and she said, oh, just fly, we'll fly to London right. this weekend, and you'll see the show. And I thought, well, I just have to do this, yeah. basically just to have the anecdote to tell right. my friends. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll go. We, we go, first class, and wow. we're staying in this beautiful hotel. And I just liked her so much. I just liked her, and I... And I liked where she, the place where she was coming from. And did you like the? But you saw the so show. So we saw the show. And, what do you think? And you know, I, it was entertaining. I thought the book was just ridiculous and so stupid, and uh, but it was very lively. And and Boy George, see the play, the show was about a fictional young man who was a young photographer you who know, comes up to London and you know gets mixed up with these decadent characters. And the character he meets the young. Boy George, who you and Morton played, mm-hmm. was a supporting character. And then he meets Lee Bowery, who is this brilliant performance artist, designer. Mm-hmm. And by the time Rosie saw the show, Boy George, the real Boy George, had come in to the cast playing Lee Bowery, right. who wasn't going to be his younger self. Right. He was playing <laughs> Lee Bowery. So, um, so she, Rosie, said, said to him, you know, I went backstage around produce your show and you're going to start on Broadway and he said oh, of course I'll do. <laughs> yeah. so then um, he uh, so I didn't want to do it so I but then so I see it in London and I sort of think well you know gee you know I like her and um, and and I sort of got the world of the new romantic movement in London of the early 80s because it was sort of similar to my experience in the East Village oh. in the mid 80s sure I know that draggy, avant-garde art world, and plus I'm a professional writer. Was it weird for you to, because most of your, not most, I think all of your work are ideas that aren't just things that you write, but they're actually original ideas. I don't do adaptation. I'm I'm not really very good at adaptation. But this this was an original idea, in a certain sense, because I just, we discarded the entire book. And then I did this research, and I I read Boy George's uh, autobiography, and I was totally enraptured with this young actor, Ewan Morton, who was a supporting role as, as Boy George. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, why not just have the play be about Boy George and have Ewan as the star? Right. You know, and, uh, and George, the real Boy George, can play Lee Bowery. But then I, 
I, where my mistake was, in a sense, was that I, I just wrote it and wrote this big acting role for Boy George. And he's not an actor? And he wasn't an actor. <laughs> and it just was, you know, charismatic and mm-hmm. he was a marvelous musical performer, but he's right. not an actor. And I did the best I could. And, you know, and then, you know, just there were too many cooks coming in there. Sure. And so it was just kind of a big fiasco. And yet, I've had to really um, grow up a little bit and accept when people say nice things about taboo because there is a devoted cult to yep. it. Yeah. Pretty smart people love that show. I, and I would think, I was like appalled. I said, you, you like it? Oh, you hated it, even when you... But, but the thing is that you can't... I, I think it's true of probably most people that in the arts, that if, you're, if your objectivity about a project is clouded by your emotions of what was going on. Oh, of course. And so I think, you know, it's sort of only human. Yeah. The pr- productions I've had that were, you know, we were so unhappy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I tend to can't see the good. Anyway, I've had to, certain times, you just have to have good manners and just think, hey, you know, if somebody is nice enough to have liked your stupid show and, you know, the least you can do is, is respect their opinion and not put them down by groaning and whatever. So yeah. so now I, I would never do that. Now just even if I was miserable and didn't like it, I would I'd lie and just thank you. Yeah. All I have to do is say thank you. Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to the next best thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. You are hearing my conversation with playwright, actor, screenwriter, Tony Award nominated playwright Charles Bush. We are talking about his experience working on Taboo, the musical produced by Rosie O'Donnell, a huge flop. And um, we've not actually gotten into the heart and soul of this interview, which are his movies and plays that I've been in and love. Uh, I played a clip from one of them earlier. I'm going to play another clip right now. Here is a great scene from his film, Die, Mommy, Die. He calls this, and you'll hear him call it, his leer. Again, Charles Bush is a very famous drag performer, a drag legend, if you will. In this scene, he is playing Angela Arden, a kind of has-been Hollywood legend film actress who has, um, in her later years, gotten into some seedy business, dirty deeds, perhaps committed some crimes, I don't know, even a murder, and she's being confronted by her housemaid. Enjoy. He who transgresses the laws of man shall dwell forever in the fires of Beelzebub. That's a rather odd thing to say, Bootsy. Even from you. Heathen, purge thy sins. After 25 years in this house, I know all your dirty little secrets, and I mean all of them. And after 25 years, you finally show your true colors. I must say, it's not terribly attractive. Lady, I'm going to be around your neck like an albatross till the day you leave this green earth. And I mean it. Listen, sister. I don't take threats from maids. Now it's you who's showing her true colors. You never fooled me, not for a minute. I always knew you were nothing but trash washed over the Canadian border. You're never going to write a book about Mr. Sussman because I won't let you. You're not going to make a penny spoiling his good name. You floor-scrubbing old hag. You've got nothing on me. And even if you did, who would believe you? You're a liar, a cheat, and a drunk. I dried out at one of those fancy sanitariums years ago. I know how much of our booze you've been knocking back alone in your pitiful little maid's room. You're a lonely, bitter souse, Bootsy. No one's going to believe your word against mine. And I mean no one. 
All right, and back to my interview with the one and only Charles Bush. All right, you've been called the queen of drag and drag legend and all that stuff, but I feel like I feel like there's a difference between what you do and especially nowadays your typical like drag queen. Like if my, friends of mine will say like, oh yeah, I'm in this drag show or I'm going to a drag show. I feel like there's a difference between, because if I go to see a drag show today, there's lip syncing, there's like, you know, they like come out and roast the audience, sit on people's laps. Like what you're doing is you, you write plays and you're playing these roles. I always play a character. Yeah, well, and yeah, exactly. And well, 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 but then I also done my cabaret act where I'm not playing a character at all, actually. I'm, and I'm introduced as Charles Bush, and yet for some reason I'm come out and drag and then proceed to tell real stories about my life and sing songs by, well, you know, but that's part know, of your life. The Beatles, you know, so, I, <laughs> so it's a, it is a little odd. In fact, I'm kind of transitioning out of drag for my act because it seemed a little superfluous. But do you know what I mean? Because there is a dichotomy between what you do and... and the drag queen? Yeah. It is, it is different, and it's, and it's getting more complicated today with, with drag race. Right. You know, because, which I love. I, mean, I, sure. I, never, I never miss it. You know, I think yeah. it's a wonderful show. Um, but I think the expe- it's funny how it's, things morph, and I think the expectations because of that show of what a drag queen is. Because in, 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 in my day, <laughs> you know, back in the, you know, the century, Performers like like Lipsinka and I, we, we, you know, we we bristled at ever being called a drag queen. Oh yeah, because it implied that it was our lifestyle. It implied somehow that we weren't professionals. Right. That we were just these weird characters who don't show up on time and are drunk and on <laughs> and drugs. Perform and, in bars. Yes, and yeah. you know that sort of thing. And and um, we wanted to be taken very seriously by the critics and. Mm-hmm. And all the producers and whatever, so so we you know we you know had a fit when somebody a publicist you know if there's a press release goes out it says actor playwright drag queen yeah you know, I, I get very upset and so you got to rewrite that you know and and I've had to come up with something to say some I mean yeah my my manager of 35 years, I always say, well, you're not a, you know, I always say, what you do isn't drag. I thought, honey, listen, I, I'm in a dress. I mean, yeah. you got, let's be real. I mean, we've got to describe me somehow. Well, yeah. And you don't, you know, and, and you don't want to get all pretentious about it and call yourself a, a gender illusionist and all that well, shit. You know? Or a female impersonator. I mean, it's, you're in drag. You're in drag, so you got you to describe yourself. So I, you know, I sometimes say, well, you call me a drag legend. It's a little <laughs> well, pretentious, but, but just, I don't, because I don't want to be called a drag queen. And I don't read, see, that's well. Good. See, because that was my real question. Because like when I read if you, about you, and if I see drag queen, I'm like, and I don't mean to put down drag. Queens. No, I don't either. Because I, 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 I yeah. really love all those performers, but I don't. And I, and it's funny because I'm, I relate to them in some ways, and in some ways I don't. We share certain bloodlines, and in some, some ways we have different, different uh, genes. You know, uh, so it, it, it is a, a thing. And in a way, I think that. Demands what the expectations of a drag performer today, because of drag race, are more outrageous. Mm-hmm. Now I got—I remember I, um, I was doing my act in London uh, about two years ago, but somehow I accidentally came across 
a review in London that was from a gay paper and the and the young gay young gay writer he was just not having me at all wow. and I could see that from his context his perspective that he wanted me to be outrageous and kind of a sexual outlaw and and uh, you know really in your face and uh, challenging the challenging sex the ideas of gender and and all these things you know and and here, here I was out, you know, looking very elegant and, Did he not know and, your and singing a Sondheim song was not what he was, well, you know. But you have to know what you're going to, to see. Well, he wanted certain. I guess he did. Wasn't he was in yeah. England? He yeah. he didn't know who I was, and and he just didn't. That was not what he wanted. Um, you were featured in the A and E biography of Judy Garland, and have said that you thought she was the greatest actress, singer, entertainer ever. What what is it? Do you think about her? that made her so special and so timeless besides yeah because she doesn't date at all i mean honestly i really do think if um if, when you see her clip from her mm -hmm. tv show mm -hmm. she's so honest and so real yeah you know there's nothing nothing camp about her but she can be campy right because it, you know in her sense of humor she had a sure. kind of gay man sense of humor right so in her storytelling when she would tell an anecdote, it was she was campy, yeah. but she's not a camp figure yeah. like right. Maria Montez or you know right. or something like yeah. that. <laughs> you know, so she there's an interesting yeah. difference. No, I think she speaks very immediately to to uh, a contemporary audience. Um, I don't think you really have to make an adjustment like with a lot of a lot of actors mm -hmm. from the past. You have to kind of understand that they're acting a different style yeah. and blah 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 blah. I don't think you have to make any apologies for her. No. I think she's just, it's, it's so honest and so, and she's so ironic. See, what I find fascinating about her as a singer and as an actress, and they're so linked together because she yeah. acts every song. Right, yeah. Um, oh, she lived those songs. She, yeah, that, but she's always got, a, her, there's a wry element that in her, in her movie musicals, you know, she might still, whenever she, often she'll sell the big number. <laughs> But then at the very end of it, she has this kind of, she deflates in a way by having kind of a wry, oh, what the hell, you know, <laughs> looking at the, at, you know, like the uh, the trolley song or mm -hmm. or uh, Happy Harvest. I mean, all these different oh, things. Right. She does she does it a lot. Like, she yeah. does a lot, you know, just there's something always kind of ironic yeah. and uh, humorous. Uh, you know, she, I, oh, I find her endlessly fascinating. Well, I bring her up because she's considered to be, you know, a huge gay icon and um what exactly does that mean and how do you think that came to be because because i kind of think of judy garland and gay icon a lot or kind of how i think of you and drag queen it's like you know yes you you are one but you guys are so much more like she i know people like who know judy garland only as a gay icon but do and they appreciate it well, I don't know. I think even know her real work, and I'm like, oh, come uh, on. That's true. I remember one time there was a makeup artist here who was, was I was working with, and young man, and mm -hmm. and I don't know how he, he started talking about gay icons or something. <laughs> but he, he said, "Oh, you know, I'm not really into Judy Garland." And I said, well, "What have you seen her do?" Nothing. Nothing. You know. So oh. I said, "Well, maybe you shouldn't have an opinion until right. you, yeah, so you listen to her Carnegie Hall album or right. see A Star Is Born or something." Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, um, I think yeah, and I think I think there are probably a lot of people who don't really know. Mm -hmm. They just sort of 
knows somehow she's was an icon of an earlier gay era, so therefore she does, might not speak to me because I only can, I'm only respond to you know, Gaga, you know, contemporary <laughs> music. So, um, but what know. do you think about her? Makes spoke to the gay community. Well, I you know I I, think I sometimes I think that people attribute the wrong quality to her. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Poor Judy suffered, so all her tragedies, tragic figure, and tragic. gay men, gay men associate with, because their lives are so tragic right. that they relate to her. I think it's sort of the opposite. If you were going to, I was wondering, thinking about all the famous actresses of the past, like if you had to describe them in one word, what would be the word? And in a way, Judy Garland would be survival, even though it turns out she dies, died so young, yeah. 47. But what you, you, you don't generally listen to Judy Garland records to hear her be de, to be depressed, like you would listen to Billie Holiday. <laughs> right. You know, you, for every man that got away, there's you know San Francisco. Right. You know she's some and big and, get happy. And, yes, get happy, and <laughs> right. that's in a way what's so extraordinary is that, and maybe that, and maybe that's something that gay men might might identify with the idea of of just dredging up this, you know, good feeling. Life might just be hideous and right. you feel victimized and you feel exploited and all these things, but somehow you're going to get up there and go on singing right. and you're going to make a comeback and it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> a and, bunch of comebacks. You know, yeah, so I, mean, I think that's very appealing. All right, well, Psycho Beach Party is one of my favorite plays. It's, it's, how, it's what introduced me to your work. And later, and I was actually in a production of it, Couple years Who'd ago, you play? Starcat. Oh, well, you did good for the part. Uh, well, you know, it was, it, but it was. I hadn't read the play before seeing the movie. Oh, it's very different. It is very different. There are a lot of, you know, a bunch of characters from yeah, the movie that don't exist. <laughs> Can you've said that it was ultimately that show was basically written and constructed to fit your original Limbo Lounge? Well, it was written for our company. It was right, like and a lot show. of your plays were like that, right? Yeah, it was written for a specific group of people. That play is produced now so often all over the country. Yeah. Is it weird for you to see like yeah. these random people playing parts that you wrote so specifically? It's very hard. It's very difficult. You know, I, I, I don't see it too often, but a number of theaters around the country will be producing one of my plays, uh-huh. and then they bring me out uh-huh. on the Monday night, and, and I do my act. Oh, but then, okay. but then when I'm there, I also have to see the show. And, it, and it's hard. I think it's it's almost not fair to the new cast because I I can't really be objective. I not only first of all I wrote it, you know, and I yeah. saw it in a very specific way, yeah. and I'm clouded by this clouded by waves of nostalgia. In some cases, you know, people who died and mm-hmm. and just you know, memories of you know, extraordinary times. And I I can't you know, to, to me those. That original productions were definitive, and so it's, you know, it's it's, so it's sort of unfair to me to even judge. And they've done, you know, they've done some wild ways. You know, I'll tell you, <laughs> really? I, you know, I have no control. So uh, directors, you know, get very creative, and you know, I, you know, they 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 pay the royalty. I get paid for you know every performance. So you know, I, I shut up. But you know, it's um, well, sometimes you know I've had Psycho Beach Party was written. Um, Without an intermission, it's just a ninety-minute mm-hmm. piece. Right, and it was constructed that way. And then they'll they put an intermission in because mm-hmm. you know often theaters want to sell more refreshments and things. But then I I remember reading a review, a, a review that blamed me for uh, Charles <laughs> doesn't know how to end a first act. 
You know, uh, that would drive you a little crazy, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, I know if I was going to write a fr end of the first act, I would yeah. know how to do it. You know, but yeah. So they came to you for that. Oh, well, they didn't know. Oh. They thought they'd never seen the play before. They assumed that it was written with two acts. You know, or yeah, just strange casting and changing the genders around. And you know, I was always very specific about what parts I were had men playing women's parts mm -hmm. or or women playing men's parts, like the mother in Psycho Beach Party. I wrote for him again, is a sort of parody of Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, McGann was my height. She was 5'9", mm -hmm. as I was back then. Uh, <laughs> and she um, was, was very dramatic, strong features. And somehow when we put on that Joan Crawford makeup, it was kind of amazing, even though really? she really didn't look at anything like Joan Crawford. <laughs> but somehow, and people thought she was a guy in drag because she was very low... The big voice, you know, um, but I thought it was very interesting that that the obvious drag queen role was played by a real woman, but a rather androgynous one. So. Well, and there's a kind of a weird thing where if if Chicklet's played by a uh, man in drag right. and the mom is, I don't know. I feel like that's just a lot of drag going on. Well, and it, yeah, I don't know. <coughs> I, I and just, Marvel Ann sometimes played by a guy in drag. Well, no, it was always played. That was that was written for Michael Blanchard. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know Marvel Ann was originally played by. Uh, yeah, Amy Adams did her in the movie. Right. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about the movie. Your manager, Jeff Melnick, spent years trying to get it made into a movie. You mm -hmm. thought that was a bad idea originally. Yeah. But then he persisted and eventually it got made. Now, I love that movie. Oh, I'm glad. It was like, it was, that's, like I said, that's how I was introduced to your A lot work. of people, it's a lot of people, that's how they know me. But I feel like, from what I've seen, I can't tell. You don't love that movie. Some of that movie makes no sense at all. I mean, there's, in the, um, Opening scene in the movie at the movie drive-in, uh, the the character of the girl in the wheelchair. There's no long shot of her in the wheelchair. You just see a close-up of her. But is she a dwarf? Right. You know, it's just like she's like low. Is she, you know, or I didn't even know she was in that scene. She has because you don't see the wheelchair, so yeah. she's not. You just see, see this low head, Lawrence here, and this head. You know? Yeah. So the, or or my first scene, my entrance yeah. uh, in the whole movie right. is supposed to be. Squad car pulls up, close up, the door opens, you just see my legs. Oh, cool. That and then, cool. then I come out, then you see, and then I get in the scene with, with Beth, and then there's all sorts of right. cutting, you know, close ups, long shot. We, they dragged us out to like four hours outside of LA into mountain country. I don't know why we had, why that was the best <laughs> location for it. Yeah. And um, we're just waiting around. Finally, we're losing the sun, it's yeah. finally coming down. So, all we got to shoot was the was the master, so there's no so Beth and I were thinking there's gonna be no close-ups here, so we better. It's very theatrical blocking. It's, it's like theatrical blocking, and and then there's a strange long pause where um, Cookie, the, uh, mm. my assistant, sort of walks away. But since yeah. there's only a master, there's like this long pause of her walking <laughs> away while we're just those things just drive me crazy. Do you think that maybe you're about it. but. On the other hand, listen, my reputation is many people are based on the two movies I made. Yeah. And so, well, and you God were great in it. And that's another thing I was going to say. And there's some things I love. I, mean, I, I really, you know, I my, love my parts. Of, I love know. that character. I almost yeah. wish Captain Monica Stark was in the play, but it would be unless you played I did, it. I didn't own that. Well, you know, I recently thought, I, I did a, I'd seen some productions oh, psycho. around a Psycho Beach party, and there were things in the play that just, didn't even work when we did it. I, so I did a little, I did a little rewrite 
yeah. and script to cut out certain things that just streamline as it did. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I thought of, well, maybe I could put in Captain Monica. Yeah. I thought about it, but I called my manager to ask me. He said, you know, technically you don't own that character. It's actually owned by the movie company. Oh. And oh they, my God. somebody could come after you. And I thought, well, and, and then really, you know, it would have been, because that whole plot's missing. I mean, there's no yeah, large. Yeah, there's right, no, right, right. I, I was trying to shoehorn her in <laughs> to the plot that right. exists. Yeah, I do love that character. Though. It was a little fucked up. Can we at least anyway, talk about? Let's go back. I was going to say, why don't we talk about how the good job that Lauren Ambrose did? You were yes. happy with her, right? Yes, I really up. think she shined because she what she was able to do. Her the, the the dichotomy between her and Bowman and Florence and the mm-hmm. girl who works at the Safeway. It was she was it, yeah, it was great. Well, she was terrific. We were lucky to get her, and and um, she had done a couple supporting roles in movies uh-huh. that had gotten some attention, right. and. Uh, it was between her and another another actress, and there was oddly enough, for some reason, there was some concern in some people's opinion, not mine, mm-hmm. about her red hair. I guess there was a feeling that maybe Gidget should be blonde or something. I said, "Honey, red <laughs> hair, you know, is a that's com- comedy color. That's right. I think, well, and that's kind of a staple of yours. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> I said, that's fabulous. It's an <laughs> asset. Yeah. And uh, we were lucky. She she's a wonderful actress, and she. Really got it, and that's hard for a young actress to do the Anne Bowman right. character. You know, the reason the way the way the play got written was was that uh, when we were at, at the Limbo Lounge, my producer and director said, uh, we, "You know, we ought to do a play called Gidget Goes Psychotic." Right. And I thought, well, how am I going? Not my trip at all. You know, right. I'm sort of femme fatale, right, yeah. grand dame. Yeah. The, so I thought it's going to be kind of dull for me just playing you know, this perky teenager. So then I thought, well. And then Ken said, listen, if we do it, she's got to go psychotic in a big way. So well, maybe she could be split personalities, and that would give me other opportunities to play different colors and just really perky cool. girl Smart. and do more my what I'm more comfortable with. Right. So, so Ann Bowman was more like my real, yeah. my lady. Right, right. So, yeah, so that's how it came about. But that made it challenging for a and young you know, girl yeah. to... To be this Kalula Bankhead sure. you know, uh, dragon lady. So as you said, you originally played Chicklet. Uh, for the film, you had to create your new character of Captain Monica Stark. And like I said, I love that character. I almost wish she was in the play. How did you, how did you feel about having to recast yourself eventually? Oh, well, you know, the, um, when the movie finally got made, you know, and it was, I don't know, how many years after? When year was the movie? 2000. 2000. Yeah. So and the play was eighty seven. So quite a yeah, few years have yeah. gone by, and it was just never going to be that stylized a movie. Right. Where somebody I, was I in my late forties, maybe then or something. Who knows? Um, could play the young girl. It just wasn't that stylized a movie. So it was always going to be a, a, a girl. Uh, but they they really the producers and the director really wanted me in the movie. Okay. So I had to choose. Well, who am I going to be? I could have been the mother, but I really didn't want to. Play that yeah. part, and and I and I did, I wanted a real woman to play it, um, so I had to come up with a new character. And and the and Bob King, who directed the movie, is, a, is also a skilled screenwriter, and it was his idea to add the whole element of the '70s slasher movie okay. to it, and that there should actually be a real killer because in the play, right. there's really no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> right. so harmless and uh-huh. kind of silly. That's why, that's why I didn't think it could be a movie. I I, I wasn't thinking, boy, change it. Okay. You know, I. I it kind of narrowed my thinking. And I loved playing that part. I loved that whole subplot. It was re- really fun. And I had never you know, played a big part in a movie. I'd had you know, small parts in a couple commercial movies, but 
but to have a big part in the film, it's fantastic. I I loved it. It's sort of been the same with both my films that, that I acted in, um, Die, Mommy, Die, and um, Psycho Beach Party, that they were put together in L.A., and I live in New York, right. so I was just never really around. It, it was easier with, with Die, Mommy, Die, because they all were well-known actors, so they would call me and say, what do you think of Jason Priestley? And I thought, oh, I think he'd be wonderful. You know, or, or, you know, um, Francis Conroy, oh, my God, I, I, she's a great actress. Yeah. I'd be thrilled to, to, to be in a movie with her. Um, it was more difficult with like a beach party because they were all were young, unknown people. Right. Well, so when you look back on it, to do with it, it's funny. When you look back on it, like Beth Broderick, she was in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Late after. Oh, was it after? After. Oh, okay. I think. I don't know. Oh, wait. Was it after? Oh, and it Thomas, well, Thomas Gibson, I know, was doing Jarman and Greg during. Yes, so I they guess, were kind of becoming. I guess she was. I guess she was. No, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. She was already doing Sabrina. So she was kind of, you know, she was sort of a name. Well, Actually, I mean, the one who was the big name was uh, Brendan, uh, what's the last name? Frazier? I don't know. No, he was, <laughs> he was like one of the stars of Buffy the Vampire oh, Killer. Played, played your, played your oh, role. <laughs> Starcat. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. And I'm I don't know. Terrible. Name. I can't remember his name. Me neither. I should but, but he was he was sort of the name. Really? Like, oh. What about Amy Adams? I guess she was. Like, oh, Amy Adams is totally unknown. I, know, I think it was her first movie. That's funny. Boy, was she good. Look at what she's done. I knew. Yeah, yeah, she did pretty well. She, <laughs> honestly, she had such. A, it was really a small part, yeah. and but she was so good. And uh, I'm going around a couple of days. Yeah, I was. I, I think around I very it was much. Ten days. Yes, and so the days that I was there, but she was also there. Maybe. Yeah. Eight, three days. Yeah. She just seemed like a very quiet, nice girl yeah. whose mother was on the set the whole time. She was? Well, she was a young girl, and there was a scene, a nude scene. Oh, and, right. You know, so... Was she that? Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She, her mother was, you know, rather rightfully... Right. Yeah, sure. ...was there. She wasn't intrusive, but she, you know, keep an eye out on her, her daughters. All right, you're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're talking to Charles Bush here, and at this point in the interview... We moved on. We started talking about other things, but because I love Psycho Beach Party, the movie in particular, so much, I did bring it back around to that topic. And so I'm going to kind of insert that portion of our conversation in right here because it just makes the most sense. No, no, no. Other things I think are very, 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 I love the set design. Do you like Rhonda, the character of Rhonda? The girl in the wheelchair? Yeah. Yeah, she was very good, that She's girl. She's funny. Oh, like, she was, no, she was very so good. Like, she was very good. And she was like... Kathleen something. Right. She was, she her, was like, her um, passive, progressive, like... Uh, yeah. She was great. Yeah, I mean, she was really good. Yeah. yeah she was, yeah, she was good. I, I, there are a lot of things <laughs> I like about it. There are a lot of things I like about it. I liked your wig. <laughs> just, I'm yeah, just kidding. I'm kidding. Whatever. I feel like I have this thing hanging. Did you? It's a little thing hanging on my wig that I wish somebody had said, honey, you know. And what scene? All of them? Not all of them. How could it be? The first scene. Yeah, the first yeah the first day that I shot on Psycho Beach Party was in the drive-in. Right. Where, yes, where I'm the end. At the very end of the movie, and then there was this long shot of my character climbing on the up the side of the drive-in screen uh-huh. that was eighty feet. Was, I don't know, whatever you know. Right. And I don't know. I I guess there was some bizarre part of me that wanted the crew to think that I wasn't just some Billy Drag Queen, right. you always say, <laughs> that I wanted to prove that I was kind of a guy, so that I was going to, I'll, I'll, I'll do it myself, I'll, I'll climb up the, uh, yeah, in high heels, <laughs> Wow, you know, the, the side yeah. of the, uh, insane, and, and the director said, are you totally out of your mind, <laughs> okay. if you fall, that's, you know, yeah. so, but I, 
Well, there are a lot of things that we do. Like I'm, I remember both times in both movies, I was you know I had to play a love scene with a, mm-hmm. a heterosexual actor, right. Jason Priestley, and then um, Thomas Gibson, and both actors were totally cool. I was the one who was kind of all yeah. getting all nervous and really yes, because you know there was part of me that thought, oh, I don't want them to think that I'm um, coming on to them, coming on to them, even though we're we're kissing and and all this. But I don't want them to think, you know, that I, you know, yeah. a little silly. They 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 were totally cool. In fact, so J- Jason was, was Priestley, you know, most cool person around, and just was explaining to me. I'd never had really a love scene mm-hmm. in a movie. And trying to explain to me how to position my head oh, really? to wow. you know get the most coverage and this and you know they they both guys are just such good sports and I, I was one of those more nervous, nervous and wow um, you know I, I just had less experience than them I oh, on camera yeah you know, on sure. camera was it, is it hard to adapt your a stage play for the screen well I'd never done it before a Psycho Beach party right and it was very good that I had Bob Help to, you? to Yes, and, and I and I must say I was not. I don't think I was protective at all about oh, well, that line or that thing. I I was I you know I love movies, so I was aware that okay. screen screenwriting and and playwriting are two very separate animals. Right. It's been hard though. I'm so dialogue driven that um, I'm not sure that. Well, I'm getting better at it. So maybe I was going to say I'm not so sure that screenwriting is really my forte, but I'm getting better at it. The more I I've done it. It's a tricky thing. I've had to learn, and I, I thought I did a pretty good job with, um, particularly with Die, Mommy, Die, uh, learning it. They were made three years apart. I mean, you were busy around that time. That was that was a nice period. For me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, no, I mean, have been. no. But are you happy with? I know you love Die, Mommy, Die. That's like your, my King Leah. Right, right, right. Do you, but when you, I was with Beth Midler. I'm sort of friendly with her. Drop wow. name and and uh, <laughs> hello, darling. And she had never, uh, she said she'd never seen Die, Mommy, Die. Wow. I said you, you've never seen Die. It's, it's my the rose. <laughs> right, really. <laughs> well, really. How do you? If she'd never seen Die, Mommy, Mommy, Die. How did she know? Like she's we, she's been involved in a, a possible movie version Ooh. of the tale of the Elder's Wife for about 15 years. I thought Barbara Streisand wanted to do that. Oh, it, it just keeps coming and going oh, and sure. fading in and out. It changes by the week. <laughs> well, you know, it changes by the week. Well, that'll so be anyway, cool. So we became friendly because because of that. And uh, boy, is she great in Hello, Dolly. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that she fantastic. Is. There were some funny similarities between the movie Psycho Beach and Die, Mama, Die. Wow. Well, I noticed that um, Stark was a Northwestern psych student, psychology student. Okay. And there's a part in um, Die, Mommy, where Tony Parker is referred to by her, your daughter as a su- former psychology student. Uh, I'm not funny. That wouldn't have occurred to me. But, and then also, <laughs> Yo-Yo has this constipation, or Provolone has this constipation that's used oh, in salt Yeah, there's well, a cheap laughs, honey. It's called oh, a cheap laugh. I wasn't and, sure. Maybe there was like my a... Ex, my ex-partner is really responsible for all the... Constipation? Y- yes, and... and <laughs> But he just is an easy laugh. Any any kind of toilet humor or <laughs> fart joke. A slightly lesser known work of yours is the film A Very Serious Person. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Really? I just watched it last night. I didn't see it. I bought it. I bought it on like Amazon Stream or whatever. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's nice to know. <laughs> Why? Because it's I don't know. I thought I didn't thought it was kind of lost movie like you know with Mary Pickford Silence. Well, why it? hasn't it? Why doesn't it? Well, it's very know, different for you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. That's that's one where I can't also can't uh, look at it totally objectively, objectively because 
because we just had a magical time making it. This, well, you this wrote summer. it, were in it, and directed it. And directed That's it. different for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I've and only you... directed two. I've never directed in the theater. I directed a short subject film for Showtime, and I directed um, this feature. And mm-hmm. and you know, it, it just was. It was very low budget movie, and you know, it it, it was a very different kind of a very naturalistic movie where I played right. a male character and. And we just had the best time making it, everybody. And it was a disappointment that we, we, we didn't get a, um, a theatrical distribution. And we, we started off like going great guns. We got accepted to Tribeca Film Festival. Yeah. And we won a special kind of honorary award or something. You know, award. So what happened? Oh, we, oh, we thought, oh, we're only, you know, yeah. next stop the quad. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We just, they couldn't, uh, they tried. There weren't any big names in it. And. It was a little little movie, and and that just for many reasons people just didn't want to distribute it. Well, where so did that come? Like, what made you? It st- it really started out just because I had directed this short subject for Showtime, mm-hmm. and um, I showed it to to my very dear friend Daryl Roth. She's just been a great champion of mine, and has had just been so loyal. And almost everything that I've been involved in theater or film, you know, she's somehow been a part of. So, she, so I showed her this short subject, and she, she got very enthusiastic and said, well, if you ever do a, a feature, I'll produce it. Wow. So, so I immediately called up my best friend Carl. I said, Carl, we got to write a play, a movie, and we have to write it so it's so cheap that, that I can direct it. You know? wow. and, uh, so we quickly wrote this. It was really not since, you know, one of the, like a, a Warner Brothers, you know, Gangster film that was you know churned out by the studios yeah. in a few months. We wrote that movie quick, and I, I you know and I wanted to play a male role. I wanted I wanted to have the experience of of doing that kind of very minimalist, realistic movie acting. And really, within it was crazy. Within five months, maybe we were shooting the movie. Wow. I mean, wow. that never happens. No, no, we did it. And uh, did you cast it? Yeah, so it was my movie. Right. You know. Would you write a musical? I know you don't. So I think I heard you at some point in some interview say something about like not loving, or you think it's such an obvious kind of marriage. You were writing a book yeah, for a musical, yeah. but you've just never really. Well, I've had so little success, you know, um, with it. Um, you know, I just really, I just haven't had the, most of the things I've I've done a number of books to musicals, and one show was had ran about a year off Broadway called Swing Time Canteen, which oh, yeah. was more of a review that had a sort of tangential look to it. And, you know, so I you know, that, and that's done around the country. And then I've done a couple of things. Now, of course, Taboo is you know, a terrible, notorious flop. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that uh, I may not be so suited to it because, once again, the, you know, the scene's really only be about a page and a half of dialogue right, right. as it's really Before about supporting yeah. supporting the music that's yeah. really the idea this show really should be told through music and then the book writer provides a context and and you know I'm not sure I care for that so much and yeah. um, and I don't know if really I'm so skilled but I, you know look if the right I, I what I say and what I do are two different things uh, you know, I'd say, oh, I'll never do that again because I was so miserable. But well, I guess if the right project came along that I thought, that I genuinely thought I had something to offer, mm-hmm. you know, I would, I probably would jump into the fray again. 
But you would nothing never, I've turned down I've regretted. You'd never let Psycho Beach probably be turned into a musical. I keep getting offers I, by young for people. Years. I keep getting offers, but I um, don't want to screw it up. Well, you know, I, I make some nice income from, the, from <laughs> the straight play. But wouldn't you? Would they? Ha would that affect it? Couldn't I you would make think it a separate thing? Well, or could you? I don't know. Well, I could, but I just think it would confuse the issue, and oh. and maybe then people would just want to do the musical, <laughs> of which I would only get two oh. percent, as opposed to oh, okay. you know, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, and, okay, well, and I just know really, I think that that whole interest in sixties uh, Tired movies. I'm not sure that people are so into that nowadays. Do you? This will be my last question. Do you like Psycho Beach Party? Because I feel like whenever people ask you I like about it, like, yeah, okay. Because I, I like feel like sometimes like. maybe I like uh, and the movie is. I'm no, I'm really I'm grateful about the movie that that that, that people are so fond of it. And, but I just mean and, that, and, and I like it too. But the play, like, I know I asked you earlier, seeing other people do stuff that was so specifically written might be tough. But you have to get over it. You have got to get over it. Yeah. If you're if you're going to be a professional playwright right. and you're and you're living off your royalties. <laughs> Get over it fast, honey, because okay. this is your livelihood. Right. And, uh, and just be very glad that, they yeah. want, that somebody wants to do your stupid play. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Does anyone produce any other? <laughs> do, you, like, do you ever see any productions of vampire lesbians done in Louisiana? I haven't seen them. It's done quite a bit. Actually, wait. I so think the I play, just auditioned the, for it. Really? I think so. That's who? I don't remember. Because uh, <laughs> I, I no, think it's done. There's, it's a, done. There's, a, there's a company that I think is doing like two or three of your shows. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I don't find out usually until... It's though it's after the fact. Yeah, gosh, I wish it was a few weeks ago. Out after the fact. But it was a cold reading. Yeah, but yeah. So, so I guess that's that, a hard I guess play they do to do, do in a way because it's so so fragile. But I guess the plays of mine that are done the most uh, regionally are The Allergist Wife mm -hmm. and The Divine Sisters done a lot. Oh really? And and Die Mommy Die, and um, Psycho Beach Party, and Vampire Lesbians. Do you like the play? I know. Do you like the play version or the movie version of Die, Mommy, Die? We really were, you know, from rewrote it again, <laughs> you know, uh, with elements from the movie, but then also other things that weren't in the movie that I thought oh. kind of made it a little richer. So I'd say, man, I'm really very proud of the movie. In some ways, I think that the material is best served by the last play version. Oh, really? There, well, there are some interesting things, I, nuances that I added in oh, yeah. that made it a little richer. But but I love the movie. I, yeah. I'm just, I tell you, it was so cool. To every, every day. You loved it. Every day I, I, I was so grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. You know, I've said it before, but I'll, I'll say it again. <laughs> you know, so, so often in our lives, we don't realize something was fun. Until after the fact. Oh, God. But, I suffer from that a lot. But, but yeah. <laughs> I yeah, do, really. I, oh, gee, you know, I was so happy back then. Why, why didn't I why, appreciate it? I can, I was just on, uh, it was a year ago. In fact, I was just seeing today was the last show of a tour I was on. And I just think back and I was like, I complained about stuff. All throughout the tour, oh, like yeah, all I the time. Why was I complaining? It was and actually then, right of, when it ended. Yeah. I was like, oh, I miss those guys. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, but but however, with... with Movie of Die, Mommy, Die. Every day, I was just in a state of rapture. That That's I awesome. Couldn't believe each day there was something new. Oh God! Now today I get to play a swimming pool scene. Oh really? Oh, and today, today I, I, I had a dream sequence. <laughs> you know, it just was right. And then the old time where she's doing her song and like, it's you so know, cool. All that it was stuff. So yeah. every day it was some fantastic thing. As someone who does your 
as your, you know, such great appreciation for the old female stars. Have you watched Feud? Oh, I loved it. Isn't it great? I loved it. It was an interesting thing. You know, I came at it from two totally different points of view mm-hmm. as a, <clears throat> you know, quasi-film historian. Right. You know, I, there were things that I was nitpicking about. Sure. Oh, you know, she wouldn't have said that. And, yeah. and oh, that took place in 1953, not 1962. <laughs> and, sure. But then there's this screenwriter part of me that's saying, you have, if you're doing an adaptation, yeah. you have to telescope events. You, right. It's not a documentary. You also have to invent dialogue mm-hmm. for scenes that there was no one present that mm-hmm. could have related what right. happened. And some of them they didn't invent, like her Oscar thing. Yeah, but there were a lot of things that were yeah. really were, you know, from based on all the books, yeah. you know, they got... Right. I, you know, I, I just thought they were... I thought it was damn good. And, I mean, they were... There were sequences that really um, uh, elevated the whole, I don't know, series, series or whatever. I mean, yeah. there were, in that last episode, there was that long, long sequence of, of Joan Crawford filming her last movie, Trog, that was just fascinating and so nuanced and, and complex and, and just rang, had the ring of truth to it. I miss it. It was it was something to look forward to. What the next one? The whole series was yeah. each week. It was really great. Yeah. Do you know the next one they're doing a Princess Diana and Charles? Oh. That's going to be the. That's be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Someone told me that we're done now. Oh, thank I'm you. I'm a big fan of Ryan Murphy. Yeah. I, I, I'm a fan of. I think he's great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I, we really appreciate it, and thank you for being so generous with your time. I hope we like... I'm just so hungry. I, I uh, need not eat in hours. <laughs> no, <laughs> so yeah, well, I, my stomach's rumbling. You're probably going to hear it. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I, on this. All right. So we're done? I can... Yes. I'm, yes. I'm, oh, my God. It didn't work. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. So there you have it. It's funny. There were, You heard a little blip in there towards the end. It's because I'm pretty sure that that wasn't the final edited version, because... That last 10 minutes or so where we were truly just like shooting the shit, I tried to take out. Seriously, we sat there and talked for probably two and a half hours. It was really tough to to edit that down to as quote unquote short as it was. But again, that was a great interview. I really enjoyed getting to talk to him and we appreciate Charles Bush being so generous with his time. This is the next best thing. Don't go. 